When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Paul, did you pick up some odd sounds during that? They went on for about five seconds or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Paddy's plumbing. Waterworks. <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Colin Schindler welcoming you all back to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. Today we're going to be talking about the team that won the World Cup, according to Alf Garnett, whose series Till Death Us Do Part began its first run in June 1966, a few short weeks before Bobby Moore wiped his hands on the cloth at the top of the steps prior to shaking hands with the Queen so as not to dirty her white gloves. I mean, of course, West Ham United, yes? Of course, Liverpool won the league in 1966, Everton won the Cup, Manchester United reached the semi-final of the European Cup before losing to Partizan Belgrade. Now, those clubs accounted for Roger Hunt, for Ray Wilson, Alan Ball, who moved to Merseyside from Blackpool that summer, Bobby Charlton and Nobby Styles, half the team, in other words. But somehow, the three West Ham players, Moore, Hurst and Peters, seemed to personify that World Cup win better than the players of any other club. West Ham won the Cup in 1964, the European Cup Winners' Cup in 1965, and, according to Alf Garnett, the World Cup in 1966. They were a stylish, attractive, and at the time, a victorious team in the mid-1960s, but they never kicked on, and those three World Cup heroes eventually left Upton Park in anticlimax, not having won anything else at club level. For years, though, they were everyone's second favourite team. John Holmes, can you explain this seeming paradox? I think a lot of it was to do with the World Cup, wasn't it? (laughs) And a lot of it is again to do, what are you referring to, a television programme about West Ham and about Alf Garnett. And curiously, the conflict between Warren Mitchell as the West Ham fan, even though in real life Warren was apparently a Tottenham fan, and Tony Booth, who was a Scouser and was a Liverpool fan. And, of course, that programme wouldn't go out now because yeah. it would offend all manner of sensibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny Spate, who is actually a, a left-wing socialist, actually wanted us to laugh at Alf Garnett. And a lot of people were obviously laughing with Alf Garnett rather than at Alf Garnett. Warren Mitchell was a socialist as well. Warren yes. Mitchell also yes. was a socialist. So you got this bizarre mix... I can remember my father was a Mad King fan. He told me, he said, there's this new programme. He must have watched it before me. Absolutely loved it. And it shows how much that West Ham, therefore, became part of a talking point. 
Why did they not win much? Well, actually, they'd won the cup, you know. And in those days, again, we go back to the fact the cup was seen as a bit more important than the league. It didn't really matter that West Ham didn't win the league. They all finished reasonably well in the league and they had some really good players. And there was no pressure then for either Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst or Martin Peters to move. And of course, all the goals in the final were scored by West Ham players. And the first one was made by a West Ham player as well with Moore's astute free kick and and he was the captain. So West Ham were wrapped up in England. We won the World Cup and West Ham were everyone's side. And do you know what? The following season, which was delayed a wee bit, the second game of the season, Leicester's first home game was against West Ham. I went to that game and before the game, Banks, Moore, Hurst and Peters went out on the pitch at Leicester as the opposition and were applauded all round the ground, of course. And everything in the football world at that point was perfect. It was even more perfect for me. I took my mate to a game who was a West Ham fan and we beat them 5-4. But he said, I don't care, that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it was fantastic. Yeah, well, that's typical West Ham. Part of the West Ham tradition was to appreciate flowing and attractive football. I think that's why West Ham was, for many people, their second favourite club. You know, I always enjoyed watching West Ham, but to put them in context, Upton Park, or the training ground at wherever it is, you know, out east somewhere, could be described as the epicentre of the coaching boom that in England followed the Hungarian victory at Wembley in 1953. I mean, Ron Greenwood, who was the long-serving manager and guru, really, of West Ham, he spawned a lot of outstanding coaches. I mean, your man Malcolm Allison, Colin, would be one of them. Of course. Up at Manchester City, who, with the wise head of Joe Mercer and the revolutionary zeal and original thinking of Malcolm Allison, produced an irresistible team. He learned that from endless cups of tea and moving around salt and pepper pots on the tables of the West Ham training ground. Another person there who also ended up at Manchester City later in life was John Bond, who was a fullback with West Ham and went on to be a very good manager, in my opinion, at Norwich and a decent one at Man City. There would be Ken Brown, who also ended up at Norwich. And Frank O'Farrell. Frank O'Farrell was there at the same time. Malcolm Musgrove, who was the coach with with Frank O'Farrell. You know, they all came from that magnificent tradition. Uh, They talk about Liverpool boot room, but I think in terms of spreading the word around the country. West Ham have a huge part to play in the post-war history of English football. And this was carried on later when Billy Bonds became the manager of the club. And I'll tell you something about the ethos of West Ham. I went to a match once and it was an ordinary game on a muddy pitch at Upton Park. And Martin Allen, do you remember Martin Allen? He used to call him Mad Dog. He was a nasty player. You could go in a 50-50 with him, you know? And one time he committed a bad one. I think he must have talked someone. What, literally killed them, you mean? <laughs> yeah, yes. In the modern usage of literally, ah. i.e. metaphorically, yes. <laughs> and Billy Bonds had already made his substitution and he took Martin Allen off. That was for ethical reasons. He didn't admit it in the press conference afterwards. But one time I happened to be in the same room and I said, I'll never forget what happened that night, and he just smiled and nodded and acknowledged that that's what he'd done. And I can't think there would be many managers 
who would weaken their team because they were sickened by a bad. And Billy Bonds was a hard guy. He was known as, mm. as one of football's mm. hard men. But he, and he was hard. He was hard and fair, in my opinion. I never saw him commit a bad foul. Matt Dickinson's written a very good book on Bobby Moore. And one of the things he does describe, which, which stayed with me quite a long time after I read it, was this deeply distressing, in a way, decline in the relationship between Bobby Moore and Ron Greenwood. What I was saying at the beginning of the introduction when we started, the three heroes of the World Cup were significant figures in British cultural life, and everybody, as you quite rightly said, in fact, I seem to remember the very first match of the day, the first match of that season, John, but so before the Leicester match, West Ham were on match of the day, and the three players came out before the rest of the team. Because we wanted to salute them, we wanted to make them feel they were us. They weren't yeah. West Ham players, they were national players. They belonged to all of us. Yeah. And I suppose that is such a positive thing. And what Paddy was describing about Martin Allen and Billy Bonds is very much one of the good things about West Ham. They seem to stand for the best in football, for pure football, for intelligence and for not being cloggers. You know, the reverse of Chelsea, if you like, he said, offending all Chelsea supporters. But they stood for something and that's why we like them. So why, I suppose, my question coming back to John, I've another go at it, is the decline, which is quite precipitous in the late 1960s, culminating in this awful game at Blackpool when they lost 4-0 to Blackpool in the second division and a third round FA Cup tie on an icy pitch, and that all just led to worse things off the field. But there was a sense in which West Ham became the classic Southern softies. If you were a Northern team and you played West Ham at home, that was three points. As Alex Ferguson said about Tottenham, it's Tottenham, boys. That's the point. So, John, why did West Ham decline quite so quickly in that manner? Well, they were handbag united, weren't they? That's what they were sort of styled as. Of course, what happened in the late 60s then was the rise of Leeds against that. If you look at where Leeds came from, Leeds were the antithesis, weren't they? Leeds, as the opposite of handbag united, they were the toughest side in the country. And they were more successful and West Ham were not successful. It became more and more a northern takeover because the successful sides at the end of the 60s were Liverpool and Leeds. They were the top sides, the <coughs> London sides. <coughs> and? Uh, there was another side, wasn't there? I wonder who that was. And Manchester City. Uh, we were taken over by the North in many ways. And you and I, Colin, have talked about the cultural takeover of the country in terms of film and drama. And the angry young men actually then turned into the angry young northern actors. Mm. The Tom Courtney's, the Alan Bates and Albert, Albert Finney's emerged. And everything seemed to centre about the north, the growth of Granada television, the arrival of Michael Parkinson on the scene. Mm. All these factors, people became aware of the fact that you could be on the BBC with an accent that wasn't received pronunciation from the South, mm. Coronation Street. So much appeared of the world being taken over by the North at that point, and West Ham were the South. So it was a cultural thing, I think. And also the fact was that perhaps Ron Greenwood, as a great coach, was not the toughest manager or the toughest man-manager no, that wasn't. he might have been. His England side actually played nice enough football, but they weren't very successful, were they? 
Paddy, why do you think that Ron Greenwood, a man greatly respected amongst managers, who served in that post for nearly 20 years, I think. I mean, he was mm-hmm. long until he went to England. It was, mm-hmm. it was fantastic how long he was there. But why do you think, you know, that relationship with Bobby Moore declined? Why do you think those other two guys, Hurst and Peters, disappeared, feeling not great about their last few years at West Ham? They went off to fresher, you know, pastures new, feeling pleased to be leaving Upton Park. And I just think that's all terribly sad. Yes. I don't know the minutiae of what went wrong. All I know is it became a fairly toxic club, you know, dysfunctional club, which was very sad, bearing in mind the history. Although it is fair to say that there was a serious revival in the early 1980s. I remember a beautiful team. Trevor Brooking. Exactly. Not only Brooking, but the wonderful Alan Devonshire who played left side midfield and I thought was a beautiful player to watch. I could watch him all day. There was also in that same team, there was a guy who played off the front called Alan Dickens, who had a very short career at the top, but he was a, they talk about playing between the lines. He only played between the lines. He was very hard to pick up. He scored a lot of goals and they finished in their highest ever league position, which I think was third in about sometime in the 1980s. Frank McAvenny was the centre-forward. Frank Lampard, senior, was the left-back. and I think Tony Gale would have been the centre-half, one of the centre-halves. That was a really, really good side, and it did pay a little bit of homage to the tradition of the Greenwood tradition. This was John Lyle's team, because John Lyle was the faithful, long-serving number two to Greenwood. And certainly for a relatively brief period, was one of those number twos who could step up to be number one. Yes, Lyle and Greenwood were there for a long time. West Ham were notable, I think, even though those days managers did hang around for longer. West Ham were notable for having very few managers over the 60s, 70s Mm. and 80s. They feel like a club that had a boardroom that was either incompetent in the sense it didn't want to get involved in firing a manager or they had enormous trust in their managers well we've referred before to the need to have everybody at a club working in concert so there must have been an element of that that the board liked the way Ron Greenwood played football and so on I think that Greenwood was a coach not a manager and also the three players in question more Peters and Hurst, they'd won the World Cup. They were ill-rewarded for that. We all know that. Mm. Bobby Moore did get an honour, of course, but the rest of the team didn't. They weren't particularly well paid. They weren't at big clubs. Greaves joined them, didn't he, from Spurs. As Peters went the other way. And we're all conservative in that respect. We can't face the fact that actually some players need to move on and the team needs to be shaken up because we have this affection for that team that did this, that or the other. And probably Greenwood shared a bit of the same and maybe he should have moved on. He hung on a bit too long and the whole thing didn't move because... Everybody at the club was stuck in a view that we play pretty football, so that's good enough. But of course, it's not good enough. They were the first, one of the early clubs, along with Leeds, with Johansson, they they brought in Clyde Best very early on. Mm. That was admirable in, in all sorts of ways, but also, I imagine, very tricky. Certainly the crowds didn't react with quite the tolerance and liberal attitudes that might have been hopeful. Away crowds. He was lucky. Clyde Best, in in one sense, uh, when he came over from Bermuda, 
is it quite strange how this small middle-class island in the middle of the Atlantic has produced so many players, you know, uh, Naki Wells and Kyle Lightbourne. Sean Gota. And, and the great Sean Gota. He certainly produced enough strikers. But be that as it may, he came over to this freezing cold country, but he was lucky. They went straight to Upton Park on the tube from, from Heathrow or wherever he was. No one met him. Luckily for him, he runs into a fan who says, you know, you need to get in touch with John Charles. Now, John Charles was one of two brothers, black lads, who played for West Ham. In those days, players lived in the vicinity of the ground. He said, I'll take you to his house. And he was taken in by the Charles family. He said, that helped me to settle better than anything. You get stick on away grounds. Well, it was of its time, you know, thank God. You don't get so much of that these days. So it was tough for him, but he was very popular with the West Ham crowd. They loved him, absolutely loved him. And he scored lots of goals. For the avoidance of doubt, you are not talking yeah. about John Charles and Mel Charles. Indeed, that's what I was thinking. No, they were rather more distinguished brothers, actually. John yeah. Charles was one of the greatest players who ever kicked a ball. Yeah. But the others were tidy and useful and part of a West Ham squad. Clyde Best was more than that. He could hold the ball up. He wasn't bothered by the fact that pitches were much heavier than he'd been used to because he could hold the ball up, could use his body, he could play with his back to goal, but he could also score goals. And when you think about it, to come from an environment such as Bermuda, which is very comfortable to our, you know, the harsh, unforgiving environment of a country that was cold and harboured the evil of racism, Looking back, it's quite an achievement. John, I always found going from the tube station at Upton Park down the road to the Berlin ground that it was the most intimidating atmosphere. Of all the London clubs, I found West Ham, I was more scared of going to West Ham than to any other ground. I'm easily frightened, so I mean, I'm just a Jew, you know, what can I say? Would that be reasonable that West Ham was more intimidating? Than you didn't else? go to Millwall. Much, I did so. go twice in disguise. Yeah. The East End of London, the great melting pot, isn't it? The three East London clubs, really, are Millwall, Charlton and West Ham. West Ham have traditionally been the most successful. Millwall have been the most notorious. Millwall played some nice football at times. Keith Weller went from Spurs to Millwall, made his name a bit at Millwall before he went to Chelsea and then, notably at Leicester, became an England international. Uh, I don't know. The East End is a big melting pot, yes. isn't it? That's where Mosley held his rallies. It's where there is a lot of racist activity and behaviour, National Front and all that sort of stuff. Yet at the same time, you've got this pure football element. It's the curious mix an influence of football in our society. I don't know where it goes. Certainly, I went to games at Millwall and found it really, really intimidating. It still is. Even now they've moved their ground, it's a bit intimidating. Yes. I can remember at university, I, I went down and I saw Leicester play Millwall in the Cup. We won 1-0. Lenny Glover scored the goal. I can't recall feeling unsafe, but that morning I'd been to the Thomas Beckett gym which was famous because Henry Cooper trained there. And I was at that point doing an article about boxing and the culture of boxing with a man called Brian McCaffrey, who was a boxer from Liverpool, who'd moved down to London. And he went with me 
to the game to see it. So perhaps that's why I felt reasonably safe. Yeah. But nevertheless, Millwall are notorious and West Ham became notorious. And the night that the Upton Park was finally closed, I mean, it was an explosive night. Was this the night they beat United 3-2? Yes, and there was yeah. cars set on fire. And yet still, there is this bit about, oh, West Ham, they're a lovely side. And yeah. you would get actors and people like that would say, oh, I love the football that West Ham play. They were a lovely side. More than Chelsea, actually, at that point, who were the music hall joke yeah. side until they got serious a bit later on. Yeah, well, for me, I would say West Ham have the most philosophical support. I think the fact that I'm forever blowing bubbles, which is a sort of, not melancholy, but a poignant song, a song of, it's not boastful. And to me, maybe I'm being over romantic, but that sums up the lack of sense of entitlement among West Ham fans. I think it's changed now, now that the stadium's capacity has increased and therefore the ambition or the projected ambition of the club since the move to the, whatever it's called. London Stadium, I think. But West Ham fans still have that measured philosophy that, well, you would find in many of their heroes down the years, above all Billy Bonds, you know, hard, strong, silent man, you know. And I think they're not as boastful. They're more philosophical. They're attractive I mean, I, I can remember some people from Thailand a few years ago made a documentary about English football. I was hired as, as, as sort of to open doors, literally. I, I was actually opening doors. I got quite a lot of tips. One was <laughs> give up show business. But we filmed in a pub, the only pub near that bloody horrible desert, which the London Stadium exists in. And the West Ham fans were quiet. There was no chanting. They were just talking about the prospects for the match, having a few pints outside. And they were a pleasure to talk to. I can only say I've only ever had lovely experiences around West Ham. And I find them, well, certainly until recent years, I don't know if things have changed, refreshing to talk to real football people, real football people. John, West Ham have in recent years been owned by David Sullivan and the late Mr Gold, two men who had made their money in a very different profession altogether, everybody knows. To me, it seems to me preferable to nation states who lock people up. I mean, they don't do a lot of damage in that respect. Yeah. When football clubs change the nature of their ownership in this way, does anything happen to the football side of the club? Is it completely irrelevant who owns the club in terms of how that club continues to play on the field and the quality of its football. I always used to say, actually, that if you watched a club for a long time and if you watched players long enough, their characters on the field, you knew what they were like. You watched their facial expressions when they missed chances or when they won games and lost games that you could normally see what the philosophy behind the club was. And yes, the manager is part of that. You know, one knows instinctively certain clubs are going to attract certain types of manager. It's unlikely, for instance, that Ron Greenwood would ever have gone on to manage Leeds United. You could say the same about Brian Clough, I suppose. <laughs> yes, I think one could. Clough was a, an exception. And equally, there has been, always was a thing about London clubs and certain players only seemed to play for London clubs, didn't they? 
And you said this was a sort of player who would thrive in the atmosphere of London because London is a very different kind of place. But West Ham, the training ground was at Chadwell Heath. They were very East End, weren't they? The Chelsea players all lived, even at that point, they lived out at Epsom. Peter Osgood lived at Epsom, which was associated with Yes, because the training ground is in Stoke Dublin. Correct. Alan Birchinall, when he moved down from Sheffield United to Chelsea, Alan adapted quite well to the Chelsea style in many ways. Although he'd been born in East Ham, he was brought up in Nottingham. He was very much a Northern character, but he liked to play the smart-ass Kings Road set man. He went to live in Epsom and so on with the Hudsons and the Oscars. They were very different in their lifestyles and everything. And Bobby Moore mm, possibly would have wanted to cross into that, but he didn't. He was an East End lad as was Jimmy Greaves, as was Alf Ramsey. They were East End characters. When England won the World Cup in 1966, it was a mixture, wasn't it, of the East End and actually a bit of the Northern culture in terms of a few of the players that came on. But it was the East End and London nature that came through. And a lot of the journos at that point, there was this perception of a bias if you played for a London club, you were much more likely to get picked for England than if you played in the North, because all the journos came from there. And there wasn't television and managers and certainly the selectors in the days of the FA, they read London papers more. I'm not sure that's necessarily true. I mean, my introduction, I was pointing out, you know, the Banks, Wilson, Styles, Charlton, Ball, Hunt... There was at least half the team was Northern. Well, I said it was a mixture, but the glamour bit came from the London bit. The interesting bit was that Alf, an East End boy from Dagenham, who tried very hard to get rid of his East End accent, picked Roger Hunt from the North and Jeff Hurst from the South rather than Jimmy Greaves. You're talking about on the final? Yes. Right, OK. Yeah. Well, he was always berated for Roger Hunt, and Alf always said, Roger Hunt scores 25 goals every year, year in, year out. That's why I'm picking him. And also he fitted into Alf's ethos in the way that, that Jimmy didn't. And it's all terribly sad for those of us who thought Jimmy Greaves was and probably still is, although you know, I know there are Cruyffs and Maradonas and messes around. I haven't seen a lot of them in the flesh. I saw a lot of Jimmy Greaves. I saw his first game for West Ham when they beat City 5-1. I still get cross. And he was a great, great goal scorer. Was that the Ronnie Boyce day? Yes, it was Ronnie Boyce, where Corrigan drop-kicked the ball out from the penalty area, turned his back on the game, trotted back to the goal to find the ball coming over his shoulder and into the net from Ronnie Boyce in the halfway line, volleying it back again. It's funny, I was standing on the kickbacks that day, and it was a vile day. And for many, many years, you know, I can remember it, 5-1, and Joe Corrigan was someone I really liked, and it wasn't his fault. But the thing about it is that such was the reputation of Greaves I was convinced that he'd scored that goal. I used to say, he scored this amazing goal on his debut for West Ham, because it was his debut, I think, for West Ham. He scored twice on that day. Yeah, but I said he scored this amazing goal where he kicked it out of the mud from 40 yards, (laughs) and it was Ronnie Boyce. But I was so transfixed, my eyes were on Jimmy Greaves. Greaves had the reputation of scoring on his debut for every single club he ever Uh, played for. I think he did, yes. Greaves was fantastic. But But he didn't make... Obviously, they lost Martin Peters when they got Jimmy Greaves, but he didn't have the galvanising effect 
that I'm sure Ron Greenwood had hoped for because presumably the alcoholism was already taking effect. Yeah, I can remember West Ham. This maybe tells you a little bit about West Ham. When I went to see this cup tie, Stockport County, that might be the League Cup, Upper Edgeley Park, Stockport County against West Ham. And Stockport won 1-0. A goal was scored about 30-yard drive from a guy called Tommy Spratt. And what made it wonderful was A, that it was West Ham, and B, that it was against Bobby Moore. Mm. And they weren't invincible. But to beat a team with one of the greatest English players of all time in it, even though he was coming towards the end, yeah, it just made it special. And that was the measure of Moore. And if I sort of close my eyes and, and somebody says West Ham, I see Bobby Moore. I get accused of homoeroticism. I feel the same way. Ah, yes. And John never lets me yes, forget. Yes, he was a very beautiful, not only in his playing style, but he was, I hated him. He was such a good-looking bloke. It's the playing Even style. when he was in middle age and working for Capital Radio in the press box, he was still a nice-looking man and a very, very, very pleasant companion. Wonderful person. They used to get knocked out of the cup. Yeah. You would have a feeling that if West Ham were drawn away mm. in a cup tie, when the pitches were rubbish yeah. in January, they would probably lose. I reckon they lost to Mansfield once and stuff like that. Yeah. They were not reckoned to be good travellers to the north of England. Yeah. Well, the Blackpool in, one was the famous one because four of them one. had been out drinking at yeah. London's club in Blackpool and they thought the game was off. And they still got back about quarter to 11. It wasn't mm, like they were up yeah. back at three in the morning. And yeah, they got yeah. crucified on the Monday morning by Ron Greenwood. And that mm. really finished more at the club, effectively, though they kept him for another two or three years. You know, I, as a very woke sort of person, I'm kind of shocked by John Holmes's stereotypical view of West Ham. Do you think that chippy people from outside the M25 have this <laughs> defensive way of talking about London in the same way as we Scottish people talk? about you English. In other words, we've got this sense of inferiority that we managed to release in the form of stereotyping them as defeat and not quite as tough as us. I think that's... Go on, defend us, John. (laughs) My working life has been in London. I have a property in London. I've voted in London. Now I've retreated back to the country again. I think there was, yes... We didn't travel as much. We didn't know as much. Mm. London was, you know, a different country, as I say. So we, at our age, I'm afraid, do fall into this trap quite often, do we not, <laughs> well, of categorising. Well, it's like Ferguson. He's of our age. He makes, he says, it's Tottenham today, lads. Lads, you know. it's Tottenham. It's just a, a yeah. beautifully phrased... And don't worry too much if we fall 1-0 down. You know, we'll wear them down. Yeah. without too much trouble, and then they'll throw in the towel. But Ferguson was no stranger to stereotyping. Do you remember what he said? Italians, Italians, every time they tell me it's pasta, I look under the sauce to make sure. Yeah, That's not very politically correct, is it? <laughs> My favourite story, which is nothing to do with football, concerns an Italian restaurant where they have this pretentious habit of the waiters with a sort of metal cover yeah. of the food to reveal the meal underneath. Yes. And I remember being in this restaurant and the Italian waiter whipped the top off. And I said to him, but this is not what I ordered. And he looked at it and he said, no, but he's more or less the same. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Colin, just one thing about it. As I was growing up, and I know we veered off West Ham very slightly, but the thing is, what we always used to hear was when I was a kid, oh, the Scottish players, fire in their bellies. 
fire in their bellies. I used to say, and what I could never work yeah. out is if we had such fire in our bellies, why did we always lose three nil away to Portugal and not get a shot on target? <laughs> and wither John White and David Gibson, and Jim Baxter, yeah. and Gilzine. These were purist yeah, they were. players. They were. The fact is, these stereotypes, of course, don't work. No. So when we think back about West Ham, we think of those three players, and there were a lot more. They did play some lovely football. They had a great coach, mm. and they were in the pre-Premier League era, as Paddy has said, probably the neutrals' favourite. Mm. Has that altered a bit now? Yes, I think it has a bit. They've changed the stadium. Mm. They have different owners. They change managers as often yeah. and as ruthlessly yeah. as anybody else. And the West Ham team now doesn't have probably the same proportion of local boys as it had no. during the 60s, but no, neither does any but everybody side. loved Mark Noble because he was local. Mark Noble seemed to epitomise West Ham for a long time, didn't he? He did. Because he was round the court. And he had the character. He was of the line that Absolutely. Billy Barnes, although a different physique, a different kind of player, but Mark Noble was honest, earnest. He's one of us. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, coming towards the end now, but I know that in Bobby Moore's life, there was almost not a significant a coach. It wasn't Ron Greenwood. It was Malcolm Allison. It was Allison who looked after Moore in his early days, taught him everything, always said, if you get the ball now, you need to know who you're going to give it to before the ball arrives. I mean, that was Allison's great mantra. That's why Bobby Moore always had this wonderful vision, despite the fact that he had no great pace. Yeah. But in the end of his career, we were talking about 1970 and so on, when Peters went, you know, misguided, swapped to Spurs in many ways. It would have been known within football circles that Moore had fallen out with Greenwood and wanted to get away from West Ham. And I was always slightly surprised that Allison never went in for him. But I suppose that was because, and Paddy will presumably understand this, is because we had Alan Oakes. Mm. Why would we possibly want Bobby Moore when we had Alan Oakes? Yeah. I mean, that was presumably Alison's thinking, because I'm sure Moore would have been open to coming to rejoin Alison. He had such regard for him. Mm. And City were a successful club at that time, winning trophies. Alan Oakes was probably the most undersung footballer I've ever seen. He never was flustered. Well, he was once, actually. Yes, with Dennis Law. With Dennis Law, yes, he, yeah. he was flustered. To a fault that day, he wanted to kill Dennis, I think, for about two minutes and vice versa. Actually, I think the crowd were at the Manchester Derby was very disappointed when the referee stepped in and separated them. Stop the bounce. Yes. <laughs> but apart from that, he was totally unflappable and a wonderful player. And Alison, who you might have thought would have wanted a more demonstrative player than Alan Oakes, had such faith in him, says quite a lot. Well, we had faith in Oakes and faith in Tony Book as captain, so in a sense yes. we didn't need him. Well, Book, of course, was a great captain. And if you talk about undersung players, he was certainly the best uncapped fullback I've ever seen. Along with Glimpardo on the other side of the pitch, Ooh, yes. I go back so far, I remember Glimpardo as a centre-forward. Uh, me too. Anyway, this is nostalgia this gone, is gone nostalgia gone bad. Final question <laughs> to John, then. When the words West Ham United come out of somebody's mouth... Is your response, like mine, and probably Paddy's too, a very positive one? My instinct is, if somebody says Arsenal, go, mm, Arsenal or Chelsea. Mm, mm. But if someone says West Ham United, is it still, you know, Hurst, Moore and Peters? Is it still the fact that we are positive about West Ham United? Something to do with what happened in the 60s? Or is it just that philosophy has continued unabated throughout the last 60 years? Because we are of the era 
that we are. Yeah. In the 60s, we thought of as the top London side were West Ham and Tottenham and Arsenal had been great but weren't. The others were a bit of also runs. Chelsea were pretenders, Fulham were a joke, Brentford were nowhere. Now, amazing to see the rise of Brentford more than anything else. And West Ham are still in there, but they're not really a challengers at the top, are they? John, Paddy, thank you, as ever. I think for those listeners who might have been slightly disturbed that we were a little too northern-centric, given our backgrounds and our support, I hope we've gone some way towards rectifying that damage. You can write to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. That's footballruinedmylife, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we should be back another time. So from John and from Paddy and from myself, Colin Schindler, and we'll see you all next time on Football Room My Life. Bye-bye. Paul, can I, you, thought that, I thought it was one of the best we've done for a while. Is that what you were going to say? Uh, of course it is. Yeah, good. Can I just tell you a story, a West Ham story? Oh, what now? No, it's too bloody late now. Are you still reco- recording? We're recording. Go all on, right, well, on. some years ago, my wife and I came in a bit of money and an inheritance. And because it was her aunt that had died, I said to her, let's go on a holiday of a lifetime. I said, where do you want to go? You choose. She said, I've always wanted to see the sights of the United States of America. Rang up this travel agent and he says, right, I can put together a great package. You want to see the Grand Canyon? I said, yeah. Do you want to see the Statue of Liberty? She said, I've always wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. The, uh, Yellowstone National Park, the winelands of California, and all that. And he says, and what you really should do, and it was a while ago, so he said, you, should, you really should go to a Red Indian Reservation. They're absolutely fascinating. I said, yeah, brilliant. Anyway, we went, we did everything in the whole United States, it seemed. But the best was what was called the Red Indian Reservation. I can remember going in, but somewhere in Wyoming, and they said, have you come here to see our big chief know-it-all? I said, who? He says, big chief know-it-all. I said, why do they call him that? Well, he knows everything. Absolutely every piece of knowledge since civilization began, he knows it. I said, I don't believe this. So he says, if you go down there, it's the third tepi on the left. In there, you'll find. So I go down, open the flap. I said, it's big chief know-it-all here. He says, that's me. And he had a big headdress on. And I went in and I said, is it true that you? He said, yeah, I know absolutely everything there is to know in the world. <laughs> so this is in the wilds of Wyoming. And the football wasn't that popular. And the only thing I knew about was football. So I said to him, all right, who won the FA Cup in 1980? He says, West Ham United. I said, big chief, no, I shouldn't have doubted you. That's absolutely brilliant. And off we went. We still had a lot of money left over from the inheritance the next year. I said, where would you like to go? And she said, let's go back to America. I'm sure there were things we didn't see. So I said, yeah, I'd like to go back as well. So anyway, we go back. I said, is Big Chief Noel still here? He says, yeah, he's still in the third deputy down on the left. So I go down, open the thing, go in, and I could not resist it. I raised my hand, palm towards him in the traditional greeting, and I said, how? And he said, Trevor Brooking, scrambled header <laughs> from a short cross by Alan Devonshire. I don't believe a word of it, but it's marvellous. No, no, that seems complete bollocks, <laughs> including the fact 
that your wife would share her inheritance <laughs> with you. That was the bit where it lost all credibility, quite frankly. It's a great story. It's a great I story. I quite like that one. Sports Social Podcast Network.